G'day, how are you? I'm John Safran, and I'm going to be in conversation with uh, John Ronson and uh, talking about being publicly shamed on Twitter. But he's, uh, first of all, he's going to come on. He's brought a slideshow all the way from Britain that he wants to show you. He's pretty excited about it. So here is John Ronson and his slideshow. Hello. Hi. Thank you for coming. That was the first time this week in Australia that somebody's introducing, someone introduced to me without acknowledging the elders past and present. And I, I, and I would um, publicly shame you for that. But the, <laughs> but the worst thing about writing a book about public shaming is I'm not allowed to publicly shame anyone anymore. It's really annoying. Anyway. I, I'm going to refer to notes because, uh, for the slideshow because I've got a terrible memory. I've got a worse memory, and it's getting worse and worse. Um, and in fact, my wife quite recently, as a special treat, booked me a surprise spa weekend, which is like the worst special treat for me because uh, she knows I don't like being touched. Um, <laughs> anyway, I was, uh, I was being massaged. And, and I was trying to make conversation, it was awkward, so, and so the conversation got onto my terrible memory. And I said to the master, I've got, I've got a terrible memory, I don't remember anything about my childhood, it's all gone. And she said, as she was massaging me, she said, well, most people who don't remember anything about their childhoods, when they recover their lost memories, it turns out that they were sexually abused. <laughs> so, so I said, well, I'd remember that. Anyway, um, I, I loved the early days of Twitter, and, and I still love Twitter to a large extent. I mean, this, this week, what's been happening with the refugee crisis shows you know, just how incredible social media can be as a force for good. And in, in the early days of Twitter, it was, it was just this kind of wonderful place of curiosity and empathy. It was like a place of radical de-shaming, like people would admit hitherto shameful secrets about themselves and other people would say, oh my God, I'm exactly the same. Um, and in fact, there was, there was even a phrase back then, um, Facebook is where you lie to your friends, Twitter is where you tell the truth to strangers. <laughs> and, you know, it got, you know, having, having funny and eloquent conversations with strangers got me through hard times that were happening in my actual house. Uh, and then we realised that when a powerful person transgressed, when somebody misused their privilege, we could, we could get them. We could hit them with a weapon that we understood and they didn't, a social media shaming. So if a columnist for the Daily Mail wrote something racist or homophobic, we, we could get them. Um, and, it, and it was a good feeling. It was like the democratisation of justice. It was like hierarchies were being levelled out. Um, but I think what happened then was that... Um, we fell in love with getting people who had misused their privilege so much that a day without a shaming felt like a day picking fingernails or treading water. It began to feel kind of weird and empty when there wasn't somebody who had misused their privilege that we could get. And into this odd atmosphere. Last night, actually, in Brisbane, um, somebody said, you know, why, you know, why did nobody notice what happened with Justin Sacco was so terrible? And, and I think maybe it's because, like, when you first marry somebody and you're so besotted, and you're so besotted, it's like you don't 
notice when they start acting fucking weird. Uh, <laughs> because into this atmosphere stumbled this unsuspecting woman called Justine Sacco. Um, and Justine was a PR woman from New York City with 170 Twitter followers, and she'd tweet little acerbic jokes to them like uh, this one. This was on a plane from New York to London, and she chuckled to herself, press send, and got no replies, and felt that sad feeling we all feel when the internet doesn't congratulate us for being funny. <laughs> you start to think, well, what's the point? And you surround yourself with people who feel the same way you do. So when they don't congratulate you for being funny, it's like the whole thing crumbles. <laughs> anyway, then she got to Heathrow and she had a little bit of time to spare before her uh, final leg from Heathrow to Cape Town. So she thought up another funny little acerbic joke and tweeted it to her 170 followers. <laughs> so... She chuckled to herself and pressed send and got no replies. Got on the plane, turned off her phone, fell asleep, woke up 11 hours later in Cape Town, turned on her phone, and straight away there was a text from somebody she hadn't spoken to since high school that said, I am so sorry to see what's happening to you. <laughs> and then another text from her best friend, Hannah, who said, you need to phone me right away you are the worldwide number one trending topic on Twitter. <laughs> so what had happened was that one of her 170 followers had tweeted the joke to a Gorka journalist called Sam Biddle, and he retweeted it to his 15,000 followers. Later on, I, I, I talked to Sam Biddle by email, and I asked him how it had felt to have started the campaign against Justine, and he said it felt delicious. <laughs> and then he said, but I'm sure she's fine. But she wasn't fine, because while she slept, Twitter took control of her life and dismantled it. It came in waves. First, there were the philanthropists. Then came the... <laughs> See, I, I agree with the middle sentence, but as we will establish, I don't agree with the first sentence. Um, then came the beyond horrified. Was anybody uh, on Twitter that night? God, there's fucking two and a half thousand of you here, statistically. <laughs> there must have been. I'm sure some of you are on Twitter that night, and I'm sure Justine's tweet overwhelmed your timeline the way it did mine. And I, I reacted the way that everybody else on Twitter that night reacted, which was, wow, somebody's fucked. And I... <laughs> And I sat up in bed and I propped the pillow behind my head and I was like... <laughs> and then I thought, I, I'm not convinced that joke was intended to be racist. There is a, a, a comedic tradition of this, like Randy Newman or South Park. Maybe, maybe what she was actually doing in that joke was acknowledging her privilege and then mocking it by doing an exaggerated version of it. And in fact, when I met Justine a couple of weeks later, I'm still the only journalist she's ever spoken to, and she walked into the bar just crushed. She was still wearing the business wear of her former life, because later on that night she was going to have to go into her office to clean out her desk. Uh, and as she walked in, just so pale, and wearing the business wear of her former life, it just reminded me of, like, Night of the Living Dead, that this spectral figure walking in. 
Um, anyway, so I asked her to explain the joke, and she said, living in America puts us in a bit of a bubble when it comes to what is going on in the third world. I was making fun of that bubble. Uh, but if anybody else um, realised, as I did that night, that that was you know, the presumed tenor of her joke, nobody said it. In fact, there's a, a writer called Helen Lewis, um, works for the New Statesman, reviewed my book, and said that she was on Twitter that night, and she wrote, I'm not sure that that joke was intended to be racist, and straight away she said she got a fury of tweets from people saying, well, you're just a privileged bitch too. And so to her shame, she wrote, she just shut up and watched as Justine's life got torn apart. It started to get darker. Then came the calls for her to be fired. Thousands of people around the world decided it was their duty to get her fired. Corporations got involved, hoping to sell their products on the back of Justine's destruction. You know, a lot of people were making good money out of Justine's annihilation that night. Usually Justine's name was Googled 40 times a month, but that night and for the few days afterwards, her name was Googled 1,220,000 times, which means that Google made somewhere between 120 and $468,000 out of Justine's destruction, whereas those of us doing the actual shaming, we got nothing. We were like... <laughs> unpaid shaming interns for Google and Twitter. <laughs> then came the trolls. Somebody else wrote, somebody HIV positive should rape this bitch and then we'll find out if her skin colour protects her from AIDS. And nobody went after that person. That person got a free pass. Everyone was so excited about destroying Justine that, you know, and our, our shaming brains are so primitive that nobody could also handle destroying somebody who was inappropriately destroying Justine. And then Justine's employers got involved. And that's when the anger turned to excitement. What we had was like a delightful narrative arc. We knew something that Justine didn't. And in fact, Justine's inability to explain her joke became just a huge part of the hilarity. Somebody worked out exactly which flight she was on, so they linked to a flight tracker website. And then a hashtag started trending worldwide. Hashtag, has Justine landed yet? Hipsters. Justine was really uniting a lot of disparate groups that night, from philanthropists through to social justice people, through to trolls, through to these fuckers. <laughs> that bar that person's talking about is the bar that we go to. And guess what? Yes, there was. And if you want to know what it looks like to have just discovered that you've been torn apart for a 
misinterpreted liberal joke, not by crazy trolls, but by delightful people like us. It looks like this. You know, um, my book came out in February, uh, and it's been a bit of a roller coaster since then. What I, what I usually like when I bring out books is for everybody to tell me that I'm great, and then everything's fine. But that didn't happen this time around. Um, and, and I've just finished writing a couple of pages. I, um, that I think I'm going to put in the paperback of the book about what happened to the book after it came out. And so can I, can I try this out on you? I've literally just finished it. Um, I'll just read a couple of pages of this. Last Christmas, my US publisher sent me a box of Christmas cookies with a card that read, get some rest, 2015 is going to be a bumpy year. I emailed him to ask what he meant. He replied that some people were going to hate the book. Oh, nobody's going to hate it, I thought. How could they? I'm right. <laughs> In February, the New York Times magazine published my story about Justine. Condemnation began hesitantly at first, a little uncertain, like a consensus waiting to form. The article did nothing but bring her back into the spotlight when we'd all moved on, someone tweeted. Poor thing. Her dad is a billionaire, someone replied. I'm not too worried about her. Justin's dad sells carpets. <laughs> Twitter is the most flawed information swapping service. It's, it's just <laughs> constantly getting stuff wrong. Uh, and yet the mainstream media are already insecure about its place in this new world, like the nerdy kids sucking up to the bully, just allows Twitter to set the agenda and dutifully, you know, gets in place. That tweet didn't ruin her life, someone added. Justin Saku has a new job. Give me a break already. After a year, I thought when I read that one. She got a new job after a year. Nice people like us had effectively sentenced Justine to a year's punishment for the crime of some poor phraseology in a tweet, as if some clunky wording had been a clue to her secret inner evil. The fact that she'd managed to doggedly pull things back together after a year was now being used as evidence that the shaming had been no big deal from the start. I remembered a time I was on a beach in Scotland and a flock of terns singled me out. They circled above me for a while and then began to dive bomb, pecking at my head. I ran back to the road, shrieking and waving my arms in the air. You're probably too close to their eggs, my wife Elaine shouted after me. You should be aware of their nests. I have no idea where their nests are, I yelled back. <laughs> my wife and I have a lot of fights. Quite recently, we went to a party, um, a dinner party, and as we turned up, the host said, would you like some crisps? And I said, no, thank you. I'm going to have cereal when I get home. And... <laughs> And um, out the corner of my eye, I saw my wife was like mouthing something urgently at me. And I was like, what? And she went, be more general. <laughs> this early tentative disapproval felt like the turns circling and then the dive bombing began. After reading that excerpt from his book, I think it's safe to say John Ronson is a fucking racist. <laughs> I 
An opinion was beginning to form and feed off itself that I'd written an attack on social justice, a defence of white privilege. In coming out against online shaming, I was silencing marginalised voices because online shaming is the only recourse of the marginalised, whereas the world automatically allows people like Justine to succeed. But I just couldn't see how Justine's shaming made anything better, given that her joke was intended to mock racism. What happened to Justine struck me as just another terrible thing happening in the world. I wrote about Justine not because I identified with her, although I did, but because I identified with the people who tore her apart. I consider myself a social justice person. This was my people abusing our power. This wasn't social justice. It was a cathartic alternative to social justice. I decided to try and encourage those people to read the book, and so I tweeted, by the way, the Justine Sacco story in the New York Times isn't a standalone article, it's an extract from a book. Oh, someone wrote, now Ronson's saying it's an extract from a book. What did that mean? It was always an extract from a book. <laughs> did you think I ran home and quickly wrote a book? Anything I said in that moment, I realised, would just be more evidence for the prosecution. So I went back to being silent. Why isn't John Ronson replying to any of us? Someone tweeted. Because John Ronson only replies to men. Someone replied. <laughs> I liked it when people went for me in ridiculous ways, because when I recounted those comments to other people, they made me look good. I'm not sure whether I said that out loud or just thought it. <laughs> I didn't regret writing Justine's story. I was basically being told, it's fine to write about those wronged people, but don't write about that wronged person, because it makes us look bad. A train crashed in Philadelphia. Passenger cars were ripped apart. Eight people died and 200 more were hospitalised. A survivor emerged from the wreckage and tweeted, Thanks a lot for derailing my train. Can I please get my violin back from the second car of the train? I think in the early days of Twitter, you know, people would have been curious and empathetic. They would have said, oh my God, I'm so sorry that you've just been in a train crash. What was it like? You know, a, a journalist's favourite question, my favourite question is why? But that's not how Twitter responded. Twitter responded, some spoiled asshole is whining about her violin being on that Amtrak that derailed. People died on that train. And she's an idiot. I hope her violin is crushed. And I hope someone picks it up and smacks it against the train. And fuck that little bitch and her goddamn violin. I would slap the fucking taste out of her mouth if she was in reach. And then after she deleted her Twitter account, too bad she's a coward and deleted her account. How will her violin ever be returned? And I hope you get your violin back from under the bleeding people. Good luck. And your violin can be replaced. The dead are gone forever. And self-absorbed cunt. And I won't be cutting her any slack. What a sickening skank. I hope her life is exactly what a nasty bitch deserves. And eight passengers dead, but she lives. No justice in the world. Like Justine, she was being shamed because she was perceived to have misused her privilege. And of course, the misuse of privilege is a much better thing to get people for than the things we used to get people for, like having children out of wedlock. <laughs> but a great number of people who hadn't just been in a train crash were now accusing a woman who had just been in a train crash of being privileged. <laughs> 
The phrase misuse of privilege was becoming a free pass to tear apart pretty much anybody we chose to. It was becoming a devalued term, and it was making us lose our capacity for empathy and for distinguishing between serious and unserious transgressions. I visited a TV studio in New York to film a video about the book. There was a doctor on before me filming her own video. What's your book about, she asked me. Online shaming, I said. Oh, did you read that piece in the New York Times, she said. <laughs> I wrote it, I said. Oh, you must be so happy, she said. Actually, I'm not, I said. Why not, she said. Because there's a backlash with people calling me a racist, I said. So what do you want, she said. There was a silence. Xanax, I said. <laughs> she got out her pad and wrote me a prescription for 60 Xanax. I've got to say, when I got home and I told my son that story, he said, you should have asked Roxy Coton. <laughs> it's kind of alarming, right? <laughs> After that, I was no longer anxious, but I felt groggy. <laughs> I had to weigh up whether to feel groggy or anxious. Later, I mentioned this to the comedian Joe Rogan. Welcome to America, he said. That's our dilemma, groggy or anxious. <laughs> if, I, if I ended this now, it, I'd, I'd, it would all be great. It would be like a funny up to end it on. But I've written a couple more paragraphs, which I'm afraid doesn't do that. <laughs> Can I just warn you? Um, a 47-year-old Israeli government clerk called Ariel Runis was accused of racism. A black woman had been trying to renew her passport at his office in Tel Aviv. She later reported on her Facebook page that a female official had refused to allow her to use a special fast lane for people with babies. White people were being allowed to use the lane, but not her. So she complained to the office manager, Ariel Runis, who rudely brushed her off. Her Facebook post was shared 7,000 times. In response, Ariel Runis wrote his own Facebook post. Up until two days ago, my life looked rosy, but each Facebook share is a sharpened arrow driven into my flesh. All my life's work has at once vanished with a thrust of a word, disappeared. For years, I have worked to make a name for myself, a name now synonymous with the vilest of terms, racism. This will be my fate from now on. He posted his message, then he put a gun to his head. His body was found a few hours later. And then the next morning, the woman who made the original complaint wrote on her Facebook page, this morning I awoke to some of the worst news I have ever heard. I am sorry with my entire soul for the loss of a life. For years I experienced discrimination in Israel. The only time I told my story, a man was hurt. No one is more sorry than I am. If I could, I would keep silent this time too. And then the journalist from an Israeli paper writing about the incident wrote, the aftermath was disappointing. Instead of taking a sober moment to contemplate the seriousness of internet shaming, the powerful weapon was turned like a boomerang on the woman who had posted the complaints in the first place. Thank you. The... Uh should clear up, apparently we look the same to Asians. So, 
We look the same and what? We look the same to Asians. So I'm the one who's dressed up like it's an event at the Sydney Opera House and John Ronson's the other one. No. Now, it seems like a big uh, problem is context in that in social media, no one's going to give you any leeway for context. Like, and, and it's not even a, an internet thing because I've written things on the internet, uh, have been published on the internet, like entire articles that go for a couple of thousand words. I'm, I'm thinking of one and where I went up to Brisbane and reported on this white nationalist rally in which some of the white nationalists were Greek because they were part of Golden Dawn and some of the anti-racists were Anglo-Australians. So it was like this weird thing of Anglo-Australians being the anti-racists and Greek-Australians being the racists who only a, a few generations ago were non-whites themselves, and it ended up and there was this fight at the end in which some Anglo-Australians had beaten up one of the racist Greek Australians. So I, I wrote this line at the end of these several thousand word article where I said, you know, Australia, we're all, we're, even the immigrants hate immigrants and even the anti-racist bash wogs. And <laughs> not one, like everyone just took it. No one said, oh, why have you written the word wog or whatever. Then cut to two weeks earlier, when I was actually writing the article and I was on social media and I, was, I wanted a word a bit like Guido, which, you know, is used on Jersey Shore because I wanted to describe one of the guys as a bit of a Guido. So I wrote on Facebook, I said, hey, I'm writing this piece. I'm looking for a word like Guido, but Guido is Italian, you know, like in Jersey Shore. I'm looking for like the Greek equivalent. What's the Greek equivalent? And straight away, whoosh. I don't know what's the goddamn equivalent of hook-nosed Jew who controls all the banks. And then, like, other people go, I used to, I used to like you, John, I, and, but this is like, now that I see you've turned into a disgusting... I don't know, what the hell? I was, like, yeah. up on a crucifix, like, a, you know, a few months ago. But now, and, and then everyone started attacking each other and everyone... And I eventually just had to... Like yeah. pull it, pull it out, and, and that seemed to be this sort of like controlled guinea pig experiment of how, on social media, like no one's going to give you the benefit of the doubt of context. Yeah, and not only have, I think of people forgotten context and nuance. It, it sometimes seems as if people are actively against context and nuance. Uh, so, for instance when the Rachel Doljao thing happened, you know, Rachel Doljao, who was the head of the Spokane NAACP, who had faked being black. And I thought, this is, you know, this is an extraordinary story. This is a mysterious, and I had like a million questions. You know, why was she doing this? And, and then I thought, I wonder what Twitter's thinking of it. So I <laughs> <laughs> went on Twitter. I, I honestly thought that Twitter would, would be intrigued. But Twitter wasn't intrigued. So Twitter was like, you know, blackface, racist. She's no different from Nike appropriating hip hop culture to sell sneakers. And I was just like, I, I was, I just was, I, I just was sick of it. And um, and I just thought, you know, I'm so sick of us constantly making damaged people our playthings. So and you know, for 30 years I've been hanging out with damaged people, you know, that's what I do. I, I, you know, and I try and see the world through their eyes and, and I try and treat them as human beings and, and I was just sick of it. So I went on Twitter and I tweeted something like, I'm feeling incredibly sorry for Rachel Dolezal and I hope she's okay. I mean, this was just after Ariel Runas had killed himself, you know. Um, 
And then I went for dinner, and then I went on Twitter, and it was like, you know, John Dodson's a white supremacist. <laughs> and I, yeah. And, yeah, and so all I was asking was what we should ask as human beings, which is like nobody had heard of this woman until like a few seconds before. It's like, what's wrong with a little bit of waiting for evidence, hearing what she has to say? And is there an element where you're sealed off from the world so it's easy to hate? We were talking before about how because we have to go out into the real world and meet these awful people to write about them, it's sort of... It, like, it's, e it's easy to hate when you don't have to meet people. And then as, as soon as you meet someone, even if they're, yeah, the worst white nationalist, you can kind of you see their, their humanity. Yeah, I, I, I only write about people whose humanity I can find, you know. That, um, yeah, I mean, of course, the dro you know, on, on Twitter, you know, the drone strike operator doesn't need to think about the village that they've just blown up. Um, the snowflake doesn't need to feel responsible for the avalanche, like Sam Biddle saying, I'm sure she's fine. You know, we oh, come up with all actually, these... Sam Biddle's a good... He, so he's the dude who had lots of followers on Gorka who got uh, the woman in trouble in the first place. And then, yeah, he, then he, he, got... he ironically came to an end where he'd phrased a tweet. Well, he didn't come to an end, but he got in trouble because he phrased a tweet which was meant to be taken ironically. Yeah, that said, bring back bullying. And then yeah, yeah. he was shamed and... Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's interesting though, isn't it, that we always try and come up with psychological tricks to, to make ourselves, you know, we want to destroy people, but we don't want to feel bad about it. So we say, well, I'm sure she's fine, or we say, um, oh, well, they're just a sociopath. It's like, you know, that word sociopath, it's like the most dehumanising word there is. Um, and then I bring a book up where I say, look, here are the people that we destroyed. And the response is, well, you must be a racist too. <laughs> And the other woman who you highlight in the story, in your book, is she, what, she pulled a face in front of a, yeah, a sign Stone. that's... Yeah, yeah, maybe tell her story. Just a lovely woman, uh, worked with adults with learning difficulties, was great at her job. She you know, set up a karaoke night, you know, she was great. And um, one day she, she took the people in her charge on a trip to Washington, D.C., and she used to have this kind of douchey joke with her friend that they'd pose in front of signs and do the opposite. So, like, they'd loiter in front of a no-loitering sign. This is just for their Facebook friends. Um, and so they got to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and there was a sign that said, keep off the grass. And they thought, dare we? <laughs> and they thought, no, 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 that's, that's going to get us in trouble. So then they saw another sign that said, silence and respect. And as Lindsay said to me, um, inspiration struck. <laughs> so she posed in front of the sign like this. <laughs> and um, and uh, nothing happened for a month. And then suddenly, a month later, just you know, went, went around the world. And she read every single tweet, uh, you know, stayed up all night reading every negative message, each one, because she was completely, she was a civilian, she was completely unprepared for this. Um, each tweet just snaked its way into her psyche, and she went from, you know, a lovely, bubbly, outgoing, you know, great person to so depressed and anxious and insomniac, she barely left home for a year and a half. The, and in both cases, it just seems people saying, we don't accept people being ironic. Yeah. The uh, only way to communicate a thought is in a literal manner, and if you do it in a playful way, an ironic way, we're going to get you. Yeah. You know, the very first talk I did, it's been quite, it's been quite a uh, roller coaster um, book tour year. 
Uh, in uh, Norwich was unexpectedly tense, if anyone... Uh, <laughs> the, the first question in the Q&A was, as a Jew, you need to think long and hard about Netanyahu. <laughs> which I would argue is more a statement than a question. Uh, also, Can someone please ask that, by the way, uh, later? <laughs> so Netanyahu has nothing to do with me. And then the second question was, are you a racist? And then, um, oh yeah, and then at the very first talk I did, the very, very first talk I did, I compared Twitter to the Stasi, and somebody in the audience loudly tutted. And <laughs> I thought to myself, you know, the only reason why you're tutting is because you haven't thought this through. I mean, you know, I know that sounds like an overblown thing to say, <laughs> um, and it is, but the Stasi, until now, is the largest surveillance network in world history, and when, when Stasi psychologists were, were tasked to try and find out why they got so many willing informants, uh, the answer always came back, you know, the informant pay was terrible and the job was, was constantly growing because there were more and more human behaviours that were getting redefined as enemy activities. And um, when Stasi psychologists were tasked to try to work out why they managed to get so many willing informants, the answer came back, well, we just asked them and they said yes. And so why? It's because, well, you know, people really want to make sure that their neighbours are doing the right thing. And now I, I think we have created the largest surveillance network in world history. And, and you know, none of this is an attack on, on citizen journalism or social justice or criticism or irony or humour or satire or ridicule, you know, you know, that's all great. And, you know, we constantly see, as we've seen this week with the refugee crisis, you know, the incredible good that can come from, from social media. But what we are also doing is constantly disproportionately punishing people, private individuals, um, who've done practically nothing wrong. You know, we're defining people by some poor phraseology in a tweet. You know, when in fact the truth, we know what the truth, you know, on Twitter we've kind of created this stage for constant artificial high dramas where everybody's either a magnificent hero or a sickening villain. Uh, and the truth, you know, is that we're, you know, we're, we're, we're a fucking mess, you know? We're, we're clever and we're stupid, we're, we're, we're grey areas. The, the other thing about you know, shaming people and people getting in trouble for not being literal, is if I followed around anyone here with a dictaphone for 24 hours, like, almost without a doubt, mm. they would, you would say sentences. It's just so part of the way we express ourselves, especially in a country like Australia. Yeah. So, yeah. I, a, I wrote a line in The Guardian once, which, you know, was very Justine Sacco, um, where I was, um, I was once stopped at um, Miami Airport and taken for secondary processing. I was once taken for secondary processing at Tel Aviv Airport too. They, they said to me, they said, are you a Jew? And I said, yes. And they said, name me five high holy days. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> And then so they took me into a room. <laughs> uh, and, and they were really trying to help, actually. They were like saying, well, look, where, you know, they're like a yum. And a <laughs> <laughs> and they said, where do you... Uh, where do you celebrate the Passover? And I said, at my parents' house, because the last, the last time I celebrated the Passover was when I was about 12. And, uh, and my parents. And they said, where do your parents live? And I said, uh, Cardiff. And they said, Cardiff is the capital of? And I said, Wales. And that's when and they let me in. So, uh, but, but the other time I was stopped was at Miami. 
because there was a mafioso hitman on the run whose name was very similar to John Ronson, unexpectedly. <laughs> and, um, and there were signs everywhere that said no cell phone use. And so I later wrote a column in The Guardian about it, and I wrote, um, uh, oh, I'm sure they won't mind me using my cell phone, I think. After all, I am white. And I chuckled to myself and press send. And, and, you know, nothing bad happened. It was all fine. But now I look back on that column like I was fucking Christopher Walken in The Deer Hunter, you know? With the... <laughs> <laughs> and when you tell that story of the woman and the violin, she mm. out of the train, like, I, I think... That's it's unbelievable, a, it, that story. Yeah, but it, I think it's beautiful what she said and, and really vivid and gives you a picture as someone who wasn't there as to what happened. And also, if you have any imagination, yeah. uh, you look at it and go, oh, my God, when someone's in this traumatic situation and they come out there, they stumble and, you know, their thoughts aren't settled and then they would be thinking, where's my violin? But yeah. So, so lots, of, lots of things yeah. that seem offensive is actually keeps your brain alive, because you, you, you have to think of something in a... You're not just being force-fed something literally. Even um, your friend, the South African woman, like, you had to process that what she said was meant to be taken in a different way than the literal words. And things like that just keep your brain alive. Yeah, and, you know, I went on National Public Radio in America a couple of weeks ago, and I, and I told the violin woman story. And the presenter, who's like, you know, a renowned... Um, you know, public voice in America said to me, well, what was she thinking, tweeting something <laughs> like that? And I said, what was she thinking? Well, she'd just been in a train crash. <laughs> you know, the question is, what, what were we thinking, thinking we could, you know, pile in on someone in that situation? Uh, and it's, you know, I think it's because we want, we want people... The last time I was here at the Sydney Opera House was, was for... I did a psychopath test talk in 2012, and I was standing backstage with, a, with the pre-shamed Mike Daisy, um, who did a talk. And I met Mike Daisy after he was publicly shamed. And he said something which I really didn't understand at the time, and now I completely understand it. Um, he said about having been shamed and trying to re-enter society. He said... It feels like they want an apology, but it's a lie. They don't want an apology. What they want me to do is die. He said, they will never say this because it sounds too histrionic, but they never want to hear from me again. And while they're never hearing from me again, they want to have the right to use me as a cultural reference point, whatever it suits their ends. Um, he said, uh, he said, that's how it would work out best for them. And then he said this thing, which echoes in my head ever since. He said, I've never had the opportunity to be the object of hate before. The hard part isn't the hate, it's the object. And at the time, I didn't understand what he meant. You know, I'd never been... Uh, you know, white men like me, unless you're like a Chippendale, you tend not to get objectified. <laughs> and... You know, this year, you know, I've become a bit of a fucking meme. <laughs> and I, I know exactly what he means. You know, being, being objectified is a, is a uniquely unpleasant experience. And, and I think he's right. We want people to die. I mean, three people have killed themselves over Ashley Madison already. And sometimes it feels to me like, you know, we would rather people kill themselves than for us to, like, have a boring day on social media. The, 
And I guess, and another thing with Twitter is trying to define, like, what does it mean? If you put something on Twitter, are you putting it in as are you a person having a conversation with other people, or are you an artist who's putting out something creative? Because, you know, we give, we give people leeway if that happens. So with our South African friend, it's mm. like, to me, when I read it and I thought it was ironic and doing a joke in the style of the times as Sarah Silverman of South Park, mm. I was like, well, why doesn't she get to do yeah. that yeah. when the South Park guys do? Yeah, um, her, you know, her worst crime was not being as bad, at, not being as good at it as someone like Randy Newman. I mean, you know, I love Randy Newman and, li- you know, listen to the lyrics of I Love LA. Look at those mountains, look at those trees, look at that bum over there, man, he's down on his knees. It's exactly the same joke, you know, it's an acknowledgement of your privilege and then it's mocking it in a self-reflexive way. That, that's actually good humour. And maybe, I, I don't, pretty much lots of art that we all like is from people kind of stumbling around and poking things. And then by doing that, by the people who are willing to do that, you kind of, you, l- you learn more things and we love it. Yeah. Like everything, I'm reading the, a, a, a Thousand and One Arabian Nights at the moment and it's offensive <laughs> and you're uh, poking at things and it's shocking. And, and you know, it's wonderful that these writers were willing to go there and then everything I grew up with, whether it was pop, you know, rap music or zines, everything. It was always people kind of poking at things and trying to push things a little and saying things that you're not quite allowed to say. Yeah. And having a society where you have people like that kind of, I reckon, helps the bigger society. So, yeah, I find, I find it... I'm so glad I grew up in a pre-Twitter world where yeah. you're allowed to be offensive, yeah. basically. <laughs> you, you know, we, we, I think, you know, sometimes I think the, the young are creating for themselves in a really stressful society uh, where instead of curiosity and empathy, people are constantly lurching towards cold, hard judgment. The, uh, do, do, I'll, I'll tell you this like real-time story of Twitter and offence and how mm. it's kind of... It's, I, I think it's a good thing. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and then after that, do you think we've got 15 minutes left? So after that, do you think we should open it up for... Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Not that, that's not like... Are you shaming that, me on no, taking a session? I just, as, whenever I come to, to, to events, I always really love the audience. I never ask a question because it's terrifying. Weirdly, it's much more frightening to be asking a question from the audience than it is to be sitting on a stage. And I've often, much more frightening. It's because, like, when you sit on a stage, everybody accepts that it's been determined that you are appropriate to be on a stage. Whereas when you're in the audience, you're just fucking starting from scratch. You're like, it's like you could be any old fucker. Um, so I never ask a question. But when I'm, when I'm at events, I always do enjoy My, my story also. would be over by now, by the oh, way. <laughs> so I went to a Reclaim Australia rally, which was an, an anti-Islamic rally and versus a pro the pro-multicultural people. And when I was on the anti-Islamic side, I noticed there were a lot of non-white faces, which was, like, unexpected because they were being presented, Reclaim Australia, as these, like, Nazis, basically. And it's like, oh. So anyway, so I put up on Twitter, I took some snaps and wrote some little, you know, funny comments about, you know, the multicultural spread of the anti-multicultural rally or whatever. And people got absolutely furious with me. They were saying, this is uh, me trying to cover up white supremacy and, you know, like, I've 
just taking photos of the brown people on the side to try to cover up how bad white, blah, 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 and whatever. <laughs> so, and I didn't care, because I'm like from, in fact, that wound me up even more to sort of want to talk about. So anyway, so I wrote an article about it where, you know, we, we got to analyse, well, why are there these non-white people turning up to this anti-multicultural rally? And then, you, and then through that, through me investigating that, you find out about how, you know, most of them were from this church run by this I- immigrant who's a big evangelical Christian, so they hate Islam for scriptural reasons. So then I could explain in this article, this like subset of, the, of Australia, uh. where it's you know, non-white people who are just such passionate Christians, they hate Muslims enough to turn up to this Reclaim Australia rally. Then through that, people contacted me who were, uh, there was a, a, a priest who was telling me about this local church that he uh, has a ministry at where it's all made up of immigrants from Iran who have, uh, you know, left Islam behind and now, but they feel so scared about it that they're in their own church. So I've I've gone off and started writing about that and I'm I'm sort of uncovering this whole part of Australia that sort of hasn't really been touched on or written about or explored or whatever. And it's all because at the start, you know, I didn't give a shit about, you know, I, yeah. I did something offensive by making a joke on Twitter about the non-white people at the white nationalist rally. Yeah, <laughs> curiosity. See, curiosity opens doors and condemnation and labelling slams doors closed. And that's, you know, I mean, I've loved your work. I've loved John's work for 15, 20 years. And, you know, you're like a kindred spirit. You, you ask questions, you go into places, you have adventures. And, you know, that's what we should be doing. Hey, so, question. Oh, I, I like your work too, but I thought that was... <laughs> goes without saying. I'll tell you who's better than both of us, though. What? Louis Theroux. Louis, Louis Theroux. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I used, the... me, and you, me and Louis used to be so competitive. I mean, thank God we've matured. Do you, do you have his email address? Yeah. Yeah, I've got... No, I've got a... Do you know... He <laughs> can, I'll, I'll tell you later. I'll do The, um... <laughs> the, uh... Um, hey, so there's Mike's there and Mike's there and... Oh, and can we have the like... Um, Naomi Klein said I should say this and she's right. Um, for the question section, can we have the house lights up a little bit more because it, it's pretty dark? Hey. Hello. Oh, hello. Hi, my name's Justine. Um, I've never actually heard my name said so much. Um, <laughs> and in such and a terrifying way. Yeah. So. And when that twi- tweet did come out, I was like, fantastic, that's what people know my name for. Um, <laughs> but I've seen a lot of the shame stuff happening, and um, I don't know if you've seen the Monica Lewinsky TED Talks mm-hmm. about shame. I, I loved it, actually. I, I, yeah. Monica, she said, I got to know her, actually, after, after her TED Talk. We did some stuff together for Vanity Fair. And she, I thought she was brilliant. There was a couple of lines that, two lines from her TED talk which really touched me. One was she said, um, people forget that I am dimensional and there was a time when I wasn't broken. And another thing she said um, was that with the Sony hack, the emails that went most viral were the ones that were most humiliating for the emailer. So the head of Sony's Amazon purchases, which for things like pubic hair bleaching cream, went crazy viral. You know, people just loved it. Uh, you know, shame and humiliation factor large in the life of a journalist. I think the, the personal avoidance of it and the professional bestowing of it onto others. Anyway. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. And I actually watched that and thought I, my hat off to Monica Lewinsky and, you know, 
yeah. it was so good that way. And the whole thing with, I guess, what she's done and, and what you're doing now is opening up a light on that. And I'm wondering in what you've done and what you've seen, because it's not about the person who's saying that tweet, it's about everybody else responding mm. to it. And what does that say about society? Like, what are we missing out on and what are people lacking to want to just humiliate and be so... Um, I mean, it's... You know, the, the language that, particularly at women, is so offensive and so over the top. Like, I don't know, what, is there something that you see across all that that you can oh, comment uh, on? Unquestionably, the, 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 the range of abuse is, is way worse every time against women than men. Um, when a man gets shamed, it's, I'm going to get you fired. When a woman gets shamed, it's, I'm going to get you fired. I'm going to rape you. I'm going to cut out your uterus. You know, every single time, women get, get it way worse than men. Um, and, and why is it happening? I think, I, I mean, I think there's a number of reasons. I, th I think um, a lot of the time it comes from a, from a good place. So with Justine Sacco, it was, you know, people wanted to show, you know, Twitter's a mutual approval machine. You surround yourself with people who feel the same way you do and you approve each other. And so with Justine Sacco, we wanted to prove to ourselves and to others that we cared about people dying of AIDS in Africa. So it was our desire to be compassionate that led us to commit this kind of profoundly uncompassionate act of tearing somebody apart. And, and um, yeah, and, and then, you know, the only thing we can think to do with, with somebody, so we see somebody inappropriately shaming, so then we shame them, and it's just a kind of circle of, of shame, which just ends up in chaos. And the only way out of it is, 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 is empathy and compassion. The, you know, the only way to break this cycle. Great prison psychiatrists and so on know that, as one person said to me, all violence he meant the kind of violence that he saw in, in his maximum security prisons in Massachusetts. He said, all violence is an attempt to replace shame with self-esteem. And so if, you, if you're really serious about making the world a better place, what you need to give people is, is you know, empathy and compassion and respect. And, and, and that doesn't mean you're a sap. You know, as, as, I, as I say, when, when, when there's a proper fight, when there's a real social justice fight to be had, have it. But you know, this disproportionate punishment, this collateral damage, you know, when we become like Rosa Parks light, you know, that's when we really need to check ourselves. Thank you. And thanks for all the books. They're great. Thank you. Uh, hi. I was just wondering what your thoughts were on um, the doctor that killed Cecil the lion. Mm. And um, as a follow-up question, the reaction to that was so extreme so quickly and there were lots of very uh, famous people jumped on board to react to it as well. Why you think that that was so quick and mm. it sort of flooded the media and why this reaction to the refugee crisis in Europe um, mm. and what's happening in Calais has taken so long for people to react to? Mm. Yeah. Um, oh. I, um, yes, I, I mean, like everybody, I, when I first heard about Walter Palmer and Seth the Lion, I, I, it was, you know, I was just, you know, utterly repulsed, like everybody was, and he, this is a good, I remember Channel 4 News, like, asked me to go on, and I, and I said, no, because, yeah, I know what they would have done, they would have been, they would have been like, oh, well, you know, you're anti-shaming, so you probably think it's okay for this, you know, awful man to kill this lion, so I'm very glad that, you know, but then the next day, Three people said to me, including, you mentioned celebrities, including Mia Farrow, she said this publicly, so, um, you know, I'm not kind of betraying any confidences. Uh, they all posted, all these people posted the dentists, 
home address and phone number on their Facebook pages. And one person I know was so disgusted uh, that she even phoned him up in the middle of the night to scream at him. Uh, and he wasn't in, of course. And, and um, the next day, they all reported feeling kind of shocked by the ferocity with which they joined in on this new hunt. And, you know, so even with Walter Palmer, um, even with Walter Palmer, there's a kind of arbitrary nature to the shaming, because, of course, you know, as we all know, hundreds of thousands of elephants are killed by poachers every, every year, but we don't go after those people because they're not perceived to have misused their privilege. Um, so, you know, I, I found the Walter Palmer thing disgusting, and I think it, it was great that it's going to stop more wealthy dentists from going on big game hunting adventures, but at the same time, something happened to us in that situation, which really bears thinking about too. Um, in terms of the Calais thing, I mean, I, mean, I, I agree. I mean, you know, the, the photograph of the little boy on the beach. Um, I, it, it, see, it just seemed that um, it's taken people a long time to get on board with trying to create a movement in order yeah. to help these people who are fleeing such a, a horrific situation. Yeah. And um, it, it, this man paid to kill a lion, which was, is also revolting, but... Yeah. Yeah, that was just exploded in this in empathy of what you what you were saying about people yeah. having empathy for certain situations, and it's just it seems strange that that. I, I, yeah, I agree. I, it, it's I, everybody knew. It's like why did it take? This is what I thought when I saw that terrible photograph of the little boy on the beach. I thought, why is it taking something as horrific as this to make people see what we actually all know? Thank you. Uh, hello. I, I guess uh, my question was also about the, the photo of that child yesterday. I've seen uh, a few of my friends copy and paste um, things that I didn't have the confidence to paste myself because I thought that people might think that I was uh, glamorising that I was someone who was uh, SJW or... Um, and then I posted someone getting kicked in the balls later on. and yeah. <laughs> It's like... <laughs> but that's what I did. That, that was yeah. my post for the day. By the way, I don't love the term SJW. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not kind of attacking you for saying it, but people have... I'd, I'd never heard that term, actually, until after my book came out. It means social justice warrior. And it's kind of a term of... It's a term of abuse yeah. to people who are too... And, you know, I feel as frustrated as anybody. Like, like, you know, I went to college in London in the 80s, and, you know, we were all social justice people, but there was always one fucker who was more, <laughs> you know... And, and it sometimes feels as if we're living in an age now where that fucker, like the worst fucker who used to hang around the Polytechnic of Central London <laughs> Student Union in the 1980s, now gets to decide everything. Um, um, but at the same time, I don't love the phrase social justice warrior because it's used... I, 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 you know, it's used as a term of abuse, and I think, you know, if we're serious about trying to get to a kind of post-inappropriate shaming world, we shouldn't shame the shamers. I, I, is, is copy sharing enough to, to do something? Is it a real response, though, as, yeah. as opposed to donating to charity or, you know, just um, retweeting a link? Does it do anything? What link in particular, though, are you well, talking about? The photo of the child um, on mm. the beach. I mean, reposting that, does that um, cause people to make an well, effort for real change or is yeah. it just me? Well, I mean, that, that, did, that did work uh, to, to an extent, anyway. I mean, it's... I think in Britain it's saving 4,000 people. Cameron says he'll allow 4,000 Syrians into Britain now as a result of that. But 
So that's good. I mean, it's not enough, but it's good. Cool. Hey, mm. it looks like we're going to have time for your li- these last two quick mm. questions. What? Oh, yeah. that's fine. Okay, fine. Oh, Shut up. Saffron. Don't blame me. Blame the goddamn oh. clock. The, um... <laughs> Okay, you. Is this on? (laughs) Yeah, okay, you number four. I'm just going to quickly point out that Peter Grass earlier um, specifically credited the free the AJ staff hashtag as having a really big impact on his thing. But my actual question is, recently in Australia, our former Speaker of the House, Bromwell Bishop, was discovered to have been uh, abusing her travel funds. And she was publicly shamed, uh, media, politicians, added onto the parlon, uh, more, Mm. you know, misuses came out and eventually uh, that led to her resignation and she was still public shamed afterwards you know when she was no longer Speaker of the House and uh, that led to a national debate over our politicians using their funds appropriately do you think that's an instance of publicly shaming for good in a way or is there a different better way that Australia could have responded to that? Uh, Honestly that one is I don't want to kind of pass the buck on this one but but because I wasn't you know I I'm, I'm, I don't want to become like the kind of... You've become like the imam. Yeah, the imam. The kind people of People come to you and they want their, their fatwa given, is yeah. this the one? Do- <laughs> the, the kind of patron saint yes. of transgressors. And I, so I, I don't answer that question because I don't know the insights. And, and quite honestly, you know what? If, if I, when I, it takes me quite a long time to form judgments about anything. And... Um, and I would probably have to like think about that for a little while and read all the stuff before really coming to some kind of judgment. I don't want to like pop up as some kind of fucking, you know, anti-shame whack-a-mole every time. <laughs> well, there's only 50 seconds left, so I don't care. Uh, you get last yeah, no one one's at to... number three. Um, you talked about the problem of um, not getting irony in Twitter and um, not getting context in Twitter. And, of course, one of the big reasons for that is that Twitter is limited to 140 characters, or, or traditionally has been. Now, Twitter's moving away from that. Twitter's saying that in the future it won't be limited to 140 characters. So is it possible that in the future Twitter won't be quite as good a vehicle for irrational shaming as it is now? Well, I mean, I hope... And you may have captured a moment in history that is now passing. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I certainly hope so. I, I think right now I, I see Twitter as, you know, unless it does something radical, I, I see it as a doomed company. Um, somebody tweeted me the other day, um, isn't it funny that something I write in this box could ruin my life. I mean, right now, Twitter is intimidating. It's, it's even dangerous. Um, and if you complain, it's the monolith from 2001. Um, after the Rachel Dolezal thing, somebody impersonating me uh, wrote, Dylan Roof is good. Dylan Roof was the man who shot the people in Charleston. Uh, so for the first time ever, I, I complained to Twitter. I've never done that before. Um, and I got back a form letter with misspellings that said, this is not, we do not believe this is in violation of our impersonation policy. So I, th- I felt this flash of rage and I thought, you know, we are unpaid shaming interns for a company that, quite frankly, doesn't seem to give a fuck about us. The, um, Thank you. Number four there. Hi there, my name's Chelsea and I'm a school teacher. Um, I'm constantly battling the poison pen, um, as we call it, I call it at school, um, with students ratting on other students and that shame culture of girls versus girls, bitch language, C language, F language. What would your advice to me as a teacher to them? (laughs) 
Uh, you know, you've really become like the Dalai Lama yeah. or something. It's been... <laughs> you know what, I, I, I think... I think in our heart, we know that what we need to do is the difficult thing. The times I've stood up, when I've seen like an inappropriate or ambiguous shaming go on against someone like Rachel Dolezal, and I've stood up and said something about it, and the response towards me has been kind of utterly ferocious and, you know, you know brutal, brutal. But I'm kind of still here, and I feel glad that I did stand up, because being cowed into silence, like... Helen uh, Lewis, I, who I mentioned during my talk, the woman who sort of sat there and silently watched Justine's life get torn apart. You know, when you're too afraid to speak up and when everybody's just approving each other, frantically approving each other and bringing somebody down and screaming out any opposing voice. You know, tech utopians call Twitter a new form of democracy, but all of that is the opposite of democracy. So I would say that, you know, if, it, if bullying in real life and bullying on Facebook and bullying on Twitter, stand up, say something, don't be cowed into silence. Well, that would be a great place to end, but there's two more people who just look... Fine, just be really quick. Just um, hurry. <laughs> do we like shaming because it makes the world, like, heaps more simple? Like, complicated things are now like, oh, we've got this incredible solution. That That's really a yes-no question, isn't it, John? <laughs> <laughs> yes and no. And number four. <laughs> um, a while ago, you did an interview with um, Katie Hopkins, who mm. is obviously massively unpopular um, due to her, the opinions she shares. Yeah. What's your take, I guess, on the online response to people like her when it could be argued that a lot of the inflammatory and unpleasant comments she posts, she actually posts on purpose yeah. in order to provoke a response? Oh, I see her as, like, totally different to, to the people in my book. And, and, and similarly, the woman in Kentucky, is it, who, who's refusing to marry gay people? I mean, you know, those people... Are, I mean, I, 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 I feel bad about piling on her because I literally have just seen a few lines of headlines and so on, but, um, so I don't know the ins and outs. But, but they both strike me as kind of agent provocateurs, you know, as kind of deliberate... And those are different from, like, private individuals like Justine and... Lindsay Stone, who were destroyed, you know, for, you know, didn't call for it to happen and so on. Um, so Katie, you know, most people, as I said in my story about Katie Hopkins, you know, most people will do almost anything to avoid being hated, but Katie Hopkins kind of runs frantically towards hatred. And that's really psychologically interesting in itself, but I think it's a completely different story to, to, to what my shaming book's about. Now, John, you're signing books. I'm signing books, yes. Out, out there somewhere. Yeah. And people can line up and... Yeah state their case and you can, you know, give, <laughs> your, give your religious ruling as yeah. to whether it's a good shaming or a bad shaming. <laughs> now, can everyone thank John very much for coming all the way to Australia? Thank you. Thanks, John.